Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today is the last guide in our series, and it's with Claire Chambers, talking about marriage. Not the decision to get married, but the relationship between the institution and the state. It will make you think about marriage in a whole new way. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. Maybe we could start by just talking about how in your mind would you characterize marriage as a political institution what makes it political well and that's a great question because of course if we think about marriage particularly this time of year in the summer we might think about weddings first of all right we might think about parties and celebrations and dresses and families and all that kind of lovely stuff and i wouldn't want to criticize you know those nice aspects of the idea of what a, a wedding is or we're even not a, here to a marriage. kill the fun right? we're not here to kill the fun we're not here to suggest that you boycott the weddings you've been invited to this summer but of course weddings and marriages extend beyond the kind of individual instance in some particular couple's life and it's a political institution because it significantly involves the state and it significantly involves relationships of power inequality potentially vulnerability so when I'm thinking about the state I mean one of the key focuses of marriage in the way I think about it is the fact that it's an institution recognized by the state in a very formal sense so the state recognition of marriage is really the target of my my critique but then even beyond the state, marriage has this very significant social meaning where it reacts to and shapes the relationships between people along sort of lines structured according to gender most significantly, but also race and class. So if you take those two sides of it, there are two kind of power dynamics at work here. There's a the relationship between the state and the couples whose relationships it sanctions. And then there is the relation within the couple and with their children as well, which is being sanctioned in a particular way. In the history of marriage as an institution, I think for a long time, the relationship inside the marriage was where the real inequality seemed to lie, the most radical inequality. A Victorian marriage was a fundamentally unequal institution. There was at least potentially a case for saying now that a significant amount of the inequality is because the state sanctions certain relationships and not others. So you just want to just talk us through that. I mean, where do you see of those two? I mean, there are lots of other ways of slicing and dicing this, but of those two kinds of potential sites of inequality, is it inside or is it in the relation between these kinds of couples and other kinds of relationships? Well, when I first started thinking about marriage from the political perspective, I mean, I kind of was aware of two critiques in the feminist literature in particular that really mirror what you've just been saying. So one is the idea that marriage is sexist and that's really talking about those kind of inequalities within the marriage that you can most clearly see as you point out in historical incarnations of the institution. And focus often on property, the idea that essentially property is divided fundamentally unequally, the man owns it, the woman doesn't. Right, so you have people like John Stuart Mill and Harriet Taylor criticising marriage in that legal relationship. I mean, Mill calls marriage um, the primitive state of slavery lasting on, and he's talking about the system of coverture, according to which on marriage the woman loses all of her legal independence. She becomes um, subject to the husband uh, in terms of obedience, but also all of her property belongs to him. He owns effectively their children. She has no rights 
to them. He is able to have sex with her at will. There's no such thing as a crime of marital rape. And those very clear legal inequalities have pretty much all been reformed in contemporary Britain. Some of them very recently. So marital rape only became a crime in England and Wales in 1991. So that's extremely recent. But nonetheless, you might think, well, that form of inequality, the sexism, the oppression of women within marriage, that's gone. And to some extent, that's right. Certainly the legal inequality is gone. But there is still a significant amount of what I call both practical and symbolic inequality between men and women within marriage. So in terms of the practical inequality, there's quite a lot of interesting social science research that shows that married couples, so different sex married couples, tend to exhibit more gendered behaviour than unmarried couples. And so the act of getting married actually changes something about the dynamic in the relationship. Does that include literally the act of getting married to go back to weddings? I mean, the weddings kind of set the tone. Absolutely. So there's a really nice anecdote by um, author Susan Mousehart in her book Wife Work, where she describes living with her partner for some significant period of time, getting married, coming home and finding that herself engaging in housework of the sort she's never engaged in before, cleaning the skirting boards and really feeling she has to clean their shared home. And she's asking herself, why am I doing this? I've never done this before. We've lived in this house for a while. And she connects it to the idea of being a wife. I'm a wife. I ought to do this kind of thing. And sure enough, the um, social science research that I've read says that married women do more housework than any other demographic. So they do more housework than cohabiting women, more housework than single women. And the people that do the least housework of all are married men. So there's something about marriage, which is factoring into that sort of idea of what appropriate roles are, which means there are still sort of inequalities connected to marriage. And do you think that is a hangover from its history? I think it's a hangover from its history and also a feature of its of its present, right? And the idea that still we have a very strong sort of social understanding that marriage should be thought of as a goal, particularly for women. So this is what I think of as the sort of symbolic inequality of marriage. And that when you enter into that state, it should be meaningfully different from the state you were in before. Because after all, you have this happy ceremony, but to give it meaning, then something has to change. Exactly. Or otherwise, why would you do it? Exactly right. And of course, for women, those symbolic attributes of the wedding are traditionally more significant than for men you know they they might traditionally change their name there's the notion of the being given away the wedding ring which men can wear but I think more married women wear than men being called Mrs not Miss there's all these sort of changes of identity that traditionally come with marriage for women that I think add to that idea so when I think about the idea of the symbolic implications of marriage for women I think of you know, you find this in all sorts of romantic comedies, romantic fiction, where wedding is the ultimate goal. Think of Bridget Jones, a character completely constructed around the idea that if you're in your 30s and unmarried, there's something really wrong and you need to get yourself onto the task of finding a husband. So there's that idea that marriage is what women ought to do, ought to think about. If you're not married beyond a certain age, there's something wrong with you. And that when you are married, then there are certain sorts of gendered behaviour that you ought to fit into. And of course, one we haven't mentioned at all so far, which is not unique to marriage, but is again strongly associated with marriage, is the traditional gender division of labour, whereby women take more responsibility for domestic and caring work, usually unpaid, and men take more responsibility for um, the breadwinning aspects. And that's something which you know we've had 
decades, centuries of criticism of the, the inequalities that that creates, not just within the relationship, but the ramifications for broader society. As you find fewer women in positions of power outside the home, and women are more dependent on, on men for, for their basic needs and for their sort of position in society. And do you think, because the case could be made that those inequalities are structured in a whole range of social institutions of which marriage is one, would getting rid of marriage make a decisive difference, do you think? That's absolutely right. So getting rid of marriage doesn't change everything. Right? There's still a lot that's going on in the social understandings which are, at least in principle, separable from, from the state. But this is where the fact that the state is recognising marriage is really significant. Because when the state recognises marriage, it is recognising it in the sense of providing an endorsement and an affirmation to this position of being married. So what I call a marriage regime, where the state recognises marriage, is one in which the state and its officials are suggesting that marriage is indeed an institution that ought to be supported, even promoted. And you see this very commonly in the sort of pronouncements of various politicians. David Cameron, when the vote to legalise same-sex marriage was passed, said in Parliament that he was a marriage man and he wanted to promote marriage, defend marriage, support marriage. And there's this sense that that's what the state is saying when it recognises marriage. Because that case does point to the other way that this is going as a sort of social trend, which is there was a widespread recognition that marriage created a fundamental inequality, but this is that other relationship between the state recognising these kinds of couples and not these kinds of couples. And that the two basic kinds of inequality there were cohabiting heterosexual couples who, who lost out on various tax and other advantages, and then gay couples who wished to have the recognition as well as the state sanction of marriage and were denied it. And the trend was towards equalising this institution by making it more widely available, not by getting rid of it. So what have you got against, if you leave aside the what we've just been talking about, what's going on inside a marriage, what have you got against the idea that we should simply make it more equal by making it more accessible to anyone who wants it? Earlier I said there are sort of two dimensions of inequality and one of them is that, that marriage looks sexist. The other one is that it looks heterosexist, right? And when I started writing on marriage, which was more than 10 years ago now, I think that same-sex marriage did not look as though it was going to be on the political horizon. It just didn't look like a thing that was going to happen anything like as quickly or as sort of with as widespread support as it has done in countries like the UK and the US. And the debate in lesbian and gay rights, queer theory, feminism at that time was very much a debate as to whether same-sex marriage would be a good thing. And on the one hand, we had what has now become the successful or the dominant view, which was that it was an equal rights issue and that lesbian and gay couples absolutely needed the right to access marriage on the same basis as different sex couples. And that's just a fundamental principle of equality. And against that, there were concerns from within the lesbian, gay and queer communities that actually thinking of marriage as the way to get equal rights would be a problematic form of assimilation, right? requiring lesbian, gay, queer couples to show they were just like straight couples and therefore it was all right to give them respect and rights. And so there was a real dilemma going on at that time. Now, clearly the sort of equal rights side, the pro-same-sex marriage side has been successful in terms of getting same-sex marriage passed and I think that that is an enormously important advance so I wouldn't want to roll back that advance I think if the state is going to recognise marriage then it certainly should recognise same-sex marriage the question is whether that's enough and I don't think it's enough 
And a second question that the jury's still out on is, will the recognition of same-sex marriage prevent further reforms to marriage? Because will it seem like that project has been finished and there's no further problem? Why do you think it was so successful? Because it is one of the amazing political success stories of the last 10 years. It This bandwagon, once it got going, it did seem to kind of sweep everything before it. And as you say, when it started, this was a really open question whether this is the way to go. And it went from being unlikely to being inevitable quite quickly. Why did it go that way? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer. If I knew why um, a campaign was successful, I'd be exporting it to all other campaigns. But I think one of the features of that campaign is that it's clearly a kind of a good news story, right? It's one that people can get behind, the idea of love, the idea of family, stability, commitment. And it cuts across other political divides, right? Exactly. You've got Cameron on the one side and more left politicians on the other. No one's going to... It's very hard to stand against it. That's right. And so that's what enables it, I think, to be so successful. So we've seen a similar sort of coalition building with the recent campaign for equal civil partnerships. This is a campaign that's been going since same-sex marriage was legalised. So same-sex couples in the UK have the option of choosing either a marriage or a civil partnership, whereas different sex couples can only marry. And this was something that was pointed out as an anomaly, as an inequality when same-sex marriage was legalised. But Cameron explicitly said, no, we don't want to allow different sex civil partnerships. And so there's been a campaign going on which has just been successful, which has been a twin sort of political and legal campaign asking for this right. And I think one of the reasons that campaign has been so successful is because they have forged an alliance across the political parties with a kind of you know, more left-wing interest in equality and a more right-wing or conservative interest in family values and stability. So that, that might be partly the, the explanation for the same-sex marriage campaign as well. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is another unanswerable question, but part of the success of the movement for same-sex marriage seems to tap into not everyone, but many people's instinctive feeling that there is something about marriage which is, on a human level, deeply desirable. So, so whether it's kind of stability, a, a sense, at least even if it's only for a while, a sense that you have taken a step into something which is a more permanent or fixed relationship, that does seem to speak to many people. This is unfair, maybe, but do you think there's a kind of false consciousness there? Do you think that attraction, which is there for many people, it, it is a, it's an attractive institution. Do you think it's because we don't get it? Are we just seeing it from one perspective? The people who are drawn to it? Because many, many people remain drawn to it. I mean, marriages fail too, but people still want to do it. 
So in the book, I open by saying that it's a book for everybody, regardless of marital status, right? So it's not a book that is trying to persuade people not to marry or saying they do anything wrong by marrying. So it's really not a book about what individual people should do in their relationships. It's about the state's attitude to their relationships. And one of the issues, as you raise there, is that what marriage means for people is you know, deeply significant for many people, but that what it means may be out of kilter with its legal condition. You know, you might think that the government would have a website aimed at people who are thinking of getting married, where it would tell them what getting married would mean for them legally. But it doesn't. The Citizens Advice Bureau has some guidance, but there's no official government position on what the legal implications of marriage are. And I do think that many people, perhaps most marrying people, don't have any understanding of how their relationship will change legally when they get married. So the image of marriage that is very compelling for many people is largely to do with tradition, with symbolism, with celebration, and its status as a legal institution is unrecognised. So one of the things that is really concerning when we look at marriage as being the main model for regulating relationships is what's often called the common law marriage myth. So most people believe that there's such a thing as common law marriage. They believe that if you live with somebody for a period of time as if you were married, you get all the same rights and And were that person to die, say, unexpectedly, you would be as though as though married and treated by the law and it's not true absolutely it's not true there is no common law marriage in england and wales there used to be in scotland until quite recently but there's none there either any longer so a lot of people think that marriage makes a big difference symbolically but not much difference legally but actually it makes a big difference legally you earlier asked me what's wrong with just expanding marriage opening up to everybody to more kinds of relationships and the worry with that proposal is that that still means that you have to get married in order to get these legal protections that are coming with marriage. So there's going to be a lot of people in relationships which are not formally recognised as marriages by the state who are vulnerable. So the kind of classic example of somebody who's vulnerable in that kind of relationship is a woman in a relationship with a traditional gendered division of labour. So where she focuses on caring and domestic work unpaid and her partner earns the money. So if that couple were married and there was a separation, a divorce, then the woman would be entitled to an equal share of the property of the household, she'd be entitled to financial support and so on. If that couple is unmarried, but identical in every other respect, then the woman is not entitled to anything at all. No support for her living conditions, no share of the the household's finances. And that's something that many people simply don't realise and don't understand. And that's a real problem. And you don't think the answer to that, obviously, is to tell those people to get married? Do you think the answer is to make sure that those rights are available regardless of marital status? Right, because there's lots of reasons why people won't be married. So some people won't be married because they won't realise it's important. They have the common law marriage myth. So you could just say, well, let's just really, really try and work hard to dispel that. But then some people don't want to be married because they explicitly reject the traditional symbolic implications that it has. Maybe they don't feel getting married in the religious tradition of their family. Maybe they're feminists who reject the patriarchal traditions of the institution. Maybe they just don't feel comfortable making a vow to be with somebody permanently when they have a different perspective on that. So there's some people who don't want to be married but are still in committed relationships for the time being that ought to be protected. There are other people in which one partner might want to marry and the other partner might refuse. So in this scenario where you have you know, a housewife and a breadwinner, it's in the man's interests not to marry the woman. 
So, you know, if he refuses to marry her, there's not much she can do to protect herself from that vulnerability. So I'm going to make two arguments that might be made on behalf of the state or certain types of politicians. One of which in relation to that would be there would be this fear that we would lose our ability to discriminate because there are obviously some relationships which are short and don't generate those kinds of mutual obligations. And the advantage of marriages of many things that the state does is it's just a very neat cutoff point. It gives us a marker. And in the absence of that kind of marker, how are we to know, where are we to judge when the relationship becomes one that creates these kind of mutual rights and obligations? Doesn't it just then get too complicated for us? And when I say us, I mean the people who might think it's their job to regulate these relationships. So it is complex to work out how to regulate unmarried relationships, but that complexity exists whether you have marriage or not. So in a marriage regime, you still have to do all that complex, detailed working out and deciding of what to do about people who are unmarried, when, if ever, they should pass the threshold for some kind of regulation and protection. So you still have to do all of that. The problem is that when you have a marriage regime, all too often that hard work doesn't get done. And the answer is just, if you're not married, you get no protection. What we ought to be doing is starting with the question of how to regulate unmarried relationships. So why would we regulate relationships at all? Well, in some cases, we just have questions that have to be determinate in law. We need to know who owns this property, who is responsible for this child. So there's some questions like that that the state just has to decide on. In other cases, you need regulations, rights and duties to protect people from vulnerability. That's cases like the housewife scenario that I outlined a moment ago. Now, what to do about these different areas of law is something we could have many, many, many books and podcasts on each different public policy area. And I don't propose to tell you what the law should be of all these different relationship areas. But the state has to decide those things anyway in a marriage regime. And my suggestion is let's think about what relationship practices need to be regulated and what the right, just, fair way of regulating them would be. Once we've worked that out, that's how we regulate those relationships, regardless of whether there's marriage involved. So we have to do the work anyway, let's do it properly, and then we only have to do it once for everybody. The other argument you would get, particularly I think from politicians broadly on the right, on the centre-right, is that marriage is valuable for children And they would say, they often do say that there's quite a wide range of evidence. A lot of the evidence is very contentious, but there's a wide range of evidence that the stability that comes with marriage does benefit children. And getting rid of marriage or downplaying its significance risks the welfare of children. Absolutely. So children is one of the key issues that comes up for sure. You're right to say that lots of the evidence is contentious. It's contentious because it's very hard to isolate from marriage as opposed to proxies like stability. Not all marriages are stable. Not all people who are not married are in unstable relationships. So stability does seem very clearly to be important for children, but it's a proxy for marriage. It's not the same as marriage. In different demographic groups, marriage may or may not correlate with stability. So there's an amazing book by American legal theorist Catherine Frankie called Wedlocked, where she argues in that book that in America, the dominant stable family form for African-American families actually is not marriage at all. It's a single parent family headed by a woman with support networks across female relatives, sisters, aunts, grandmothers, and so on. So that's stability in that demographic group. So the idea that marriage is the only kind of stable family is problematic in itself. 
But let's forget all of that. Let's imagine it's not the case. Marriage is good for children and children of married parents do better. Well, there's always going to be children with unmarried parents. You can't avoid that. Maybe one parent will die. Maybe there will be an unplanned pregnancy. There will always be children of unmarried parents. So if marriage really does benefit children, then what we ought to be focusing our attention on is the children of unmarried parents. We should be focusing on alleviating their you know, hypothetical disadvantage here and focusing on encouraging marriage and supporting marriage and promoting marriage, I would say actually would add to that disadvantage because it adds stigma to the position of the children of unmarried parents on top of whatever disadvantage we think they already have. Even if we think, and it's contentious as you say, that marriage brings benefits to children, then we should still be focusing on children, children of unmarried parents and how we can get them the benefits that they're, they're missing. And it's not always going to be by getting their parents to get married. The politician's response, and I, I completely agree with you, I can see the absurdity of it, but I can also hear it, which is, but in the world of politics, where there's a limit to what we can do. If we believe that marriage produces stability, it's hard for us to get beyond the idea that encouraging marriage is a route to this kind of stability. I think it's almost certainly the case that that's getting it the wrong way around, the idea that taking these unstable relationships and putting marriage on them would somehow make them stable. But I can see why if you are a politician, if you're talking about this in a democratic setting, it's a huge temptation to push marriage as a shortcut route to the things that you want. It might be a temptation, but I think it just is mistaken because it gets the wrong Gets the wrong way around. Gets the wrong way around. I mean, if we wanted to encourage something, encourage stability, encourage some relationship, then I think the thing that we should be encouraging is the role of parent. All right, that's what we should be focusing our attention if we're thinking about children. We should be saying that parenthood is a significant situation and people who are in the relationship of being parents, either co-parents to the same child or between parent and child, those are the relationships we ought to be focusing on and encouraging stability of parents. You know, we could have a ceremony of celebration of parenthood. We could have much more focus on how the state can support parents to do their job better. And if we're thinking about children, that would be the much more direct way of doing it rather than through this proxy of marriage which isn't even getting to all parents in the first place. I still think underlying that sort of political temptation is the thought that if we're going to celebrate parenthood having two parents they don't have to be of different sexes they could be as it could be a same-sex relationship but having two parents who have made some kind of commitment to each other the thought is that that somehow feeds into the kind of commitment they might make to their children. Now of course we know when it goes wrong it can be absolutely hideous but nonetheless, believing that you are celebrating parenthood and you hear the politicians saying it because what you are celebrating is the thought that a child with two parents is going to, on the whole, I mean, there will be exceptions, do better than a child with one. And again, the shortcut route to that is we need something, some word, something, some idea, which signals that we believe two versus one is better. And our word for that is marriage. But we do have to be so careful in understanding what the demographic realities are of the societies we're talking about. Proportions of children born to married parents vary enormously by country. But if you look at Western liberal democracies, it's pretty much always around the 50% mark. So in countries like the UK, only about half of children are born to married parents. So we're looking at a vast number and a vast proportion of children who are simply not going to be touched by these pro-marriage policies that we're imagining. That's really the, the reality here. We're not talking about a small minority that we can just ignore. It's about the, you know, a significant number, about half. Pro-marriage is 
as a political strategy flawed for the reasons that you've given. Anti-marriage is a challenging political message. I mean, the abolition of marriage is presumably outside the bounds of the possible at the moment. If we take these arguments seriously, and I think we should, we're talking about maybe piecemeal addressing some of these injustices and inequalities. Do you think at the end of it, there should be as a goal, even as a meaningful political goal, the idea that we should we should be working towards the abolition of this institution? So I certainly think the goal should be that the state doesn't recognise the institution. I don't think the goal should be to abolish it in civil society. So I don't think... You're not abolishing weddings. Not abolishing weddings. You know, I think people should still be absolutely free to have religious or secular ceremonies of marriage, to call themselves married, to engage in that sort of institution as a as a non-state related status. So that's that's something to for people to choose for themselves. But I do think the state should stop recognising it as a special institution. I mean, you mentioned sort of piecemeal steps. I mean, the first thing to do is to ensure that we provide the adequate regulation for unmarried people that is lacking at the moment. So that we provide adequate protection for people in these relationships of vulnerability. There are various proposals for how to do that. I mean, my proposal, as I mentioned before, is that we should be thinking of relationships not as one sort of package, one bundle of rights and duties that you get if you're in you know, a relationship, but rather we should be looking at particular practices of relationship and we should be working out which of them need regulation and then allocating that regulation to anyone doing those practices. So parenting is an obvious relationship practice. Other examples might be financial interdependence, or cohabitation, or migration. These are all different practices that we can engage in. Some of us bundle those all in together into one significant relationship, like marriage. But many of us are more diverse. We might have a caring responsibility to an elderly parent. We might have financial interdependence with perhaps uh, someone like a romantic partner. We might live with a sibling or a friend. So these practices are different. They have different vulnerabilities, different sort of logics that require regulation and I think in principle those can and should be regulated separately and that could be done alongside a regime of state recognised marriage as a sort of first step towards the the marriage free state which is the the future that I envision in the book. I want to finish with the utopian question because there's a long tradition including back in the early days of utopian socialism where the, the family including marriage but not just marriage is seen as one of the great symbols of inequality in, in very unequal societies and it raises that question so is the, the answer to reform the family or is the answer to reform the society? And if we lived in much more equal societies, it wouldn't be nearly so much of a problem. So if we lived in societies which were more egalitarian across the board, then some of the risks you talk about of people being trapped by regimes that leave women massively disadvantaged wouldn't hold. And so if you're prioritising steps to take to make us live in a more equal world, do we start still with families or... Is it possible that we should prioritise other things? And if we did, some of this would take care of itself. I certainly think there are lots of things that need prioritisation. <laughs> I wouldn't say marriage is the only one. I certainly agree that social change on a kind of wider scale is going to affect some of these relationships and um, issues and these inequalities. But I don't think we should be, you know, shy of trying to reform one area where we see changes that could be made because there are also lots of others that need attention. So I think my answer to that is yes, of course, there's lots of things we could do. If we create a more utopian society in general, lots of things will change. But let's start with what we can identify at the moment. 
Claire Chambers is the author of an award-winning book called Against Marriage, and we will tweet the link to that at tppodcast underscore, and you'll find links to all the books that we've talked about in this series. We really hope you've enjoyed it. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Mm-hmm.